What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 podcast by Intercom. Excited to be bringing you another interview, this time with Mark Mills, who's a strategic partner over at Cottonwood Venture Partners. And really what him and Stuart Turley, director and publisher of Oil & Gas 360, dive into is is not known necessarily energy tech, even though that's what you might expect uh, considering the companies. But really, um, a lot of this climate change stuff and a lot of the stuff that's going on in the renewable space and a lot of the the conversations surrounding that, I, I, I really think the end line that that mark uses thank you for letting me rant about reality really signifies the best i highly recommend checking out uh, mark mills on linkedin highly recommend checking out what cottonwood venture partners are doing and i don't even want to spoil most of this so i'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Stu and let him kick this one off Hey, thank you very much, Mark, for stopping by. We just so much appreciate your time and, and everything else. So welcome uh, to have this discussion. Thank, today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm admiring your work. Uh, you've been uh, involved in uh, several books. Uh, you're an author. Uh, you're a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And I loved your post on LinkedIn the other day about the meteor. I'm sorry. I thought that was pretty funny. How many billion pounds of material was out there? It well, you know, fortunately, Elon Musk's got his rocket ships. He can go collect the minerals he needs for his uh, batteries that way, right? That's why I posted that. Since, I, I since he's not that. happy about mining mining in the Congo, as we know. Oh, um, and you know, the, the topic that we're going to be talking to, uh, today about with your expertise is ESG and you know, environment, social, and governance. And your paper uh, that you put out, the white paper, Mines, Minerals, Green, and Green, Energy, a Reality Check. Uh, it is a phenomenal uh, paper that you put out. And I went, I just went through all these facts and, and I mean, there was some good stuff in there. And when, uh, I, I wish people would listen to the facts and if, if we could just go through some of these, sure. um, you know, there's a fallacy about green energy and you talk about it in your paper about green energy. And then we say, great, it's a wind farm. But you bring out in the paper, it takes a lot of carbon to make a wind, uh, a wind, uh, wind farm. Yeah. How much do normally, how much carbon are they normally building in there, the clean tech? It's like uh, 30,000 tons of iron ore. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I focused uh, deliberately on the minerals and material requirements, not on carbon or carbon okay. dioxide for a very specific reason. I don't have any reason to debate um, in that kind of paper whether or not people are worried about carbon dioxide or not. That does, it's, right. if, you're, if you're worried about it, that, that's fine. I'm not, uh, as, as most people probably know, I, I'm not countered in the camp that is uh, amongst the apocalyptics that thinks the world's going to end in eight years if we don't do something. Uh, okay. But I'm neither, uh, I guess you'd have to say I'm not in the hoax camp <clears throat> of uh, climate change. I'm in the Dick Lindzen camp. Dick Lindzen, of course, is emeritus professor at MIT, friend, economist, a friend, a brilliant guy who has said what a lot of scientists say, it is not in dispute that uh, humans have an effect on the climate. Of course we do. It's not in dispute that the climate's changing. It's to be not to not to be facetious it's always changing right what's what's in dispute 
is the magnitude of humans, human effects on the climate change and the timing of it. That's in fact in dispute. There's no settled science there. So the settled science is we have an effect. The right. unclear science is what the effect is and when, but one thing that is clear, the science that is, is, is much firmer and indisputable, and this is what I focus on, is the science of energy technologies. We know things that can be done and can't be done in timeframes that have any meaning whatsoever, which is with science that exists today. And that is all of the proposals without exception. I shouldn't say that. There's an exception. The exception is, are the nuclear proposals, which most Greens don't like. But all the proposals that are in fashion uh, to use lots of wind, solar, and batteries entail massive quantities of minerals to be mined, refined to produce the machines. That process has several implications. And I would sort of end by putting them into three buckets the implications are in. One is the one you started with, which is the energy required to extract the minerals, process them, convert them into machines that wear out, i.e. they're not renewable, right. uh, in itself entails carbon dioxide emissions because of the nature of those processes and where they take place. The magnitude of the materials required, roughly speaking, tenfold increase over what we extract from the earth today with our current hydrocarbon-based energy systems. The second issue is the magnitude of the materials required is epic. Huge increase in the magnitude of extractions from the earth to deliver the exact same amount of energy. And the third issue is the location of those extractions mm -hmm. has geopolitical, social, and moral implications because we are essentially self-sufficient in hydrocarbons. You know, if you look at our overall energy infrastructure, you would count them fuels for electricity and fuels for transportation and heat. We're, we're uh, roughly at balance. We're a net exporter of, of course, refined petroleum products, a slight net importer of, of you know, crude oil and so forth, and a net exporter of natural gas. And we, don't, we export some electricity to Mexico, but basically we're self-sufficient in the third of our energy economy. So we have the self-sufficiency in how we fuel our economy. Right. When it comes to green machines, we are not only not self-sufficient, we are an importer of 90% of the green machines currently, wind and solar. And uh -huh. if we weren't importing them, we would be importing the minerals to make them because the United States has mm -hmm. been hostile to the expansion of mines for at least three, maybe four decades, certainly, certainly for 30 or 40 years, maybe longer realistically, but certainly the last three decades. So we don't have a significant expansion of any kind of mining and the green path, a priori. This is not a. This is not a. It's not a bug. It's just a priori, a fact. Will require an epic increase in mining of metals and minerals. Right. Um, do you see any of the uh, new regular? Because I believe there were seventeen major ones that you had said that we had uh, exported out. We were only down to like several that we were still doing in the U.S. The climate, as far as culture is, they don't want to open those mines back right. up. Right. Well, it's a national security issue right now. Well, yeah, the, the issue, it's an interesting, uh, long time ago, galaxy far away, uh, I worked <laughs> in a mining company in Canada. 
So I have some personal familiarity with mining. I like mining, in fact. So yes. my, my analysis is not because I'm hostile to mining. I'm actually a mining bull. I think we should mine more in America. But uh, you, your point about national security and critical mineral dependencies is a related but slightly different point in this way. Uh, starting shortly after World War One, so it's a long time ago, a century ago, United States a government through the military primarily then, but Congress ordered uh, exploration of critical minerals, minerals that were important to the war effort. So the idea that the United States might be dependent on not oil or coal or gas or wood, but specific critical minerals mm -hmm. that were necessary for building at that time, you know, war machines began then. Congress passed a uh, critical minerals at stockpiling act and it's been renewed uh, since then, it's still in place. So the Defense Department looks at critical minerals that are relevant to its mission. Now, we are import, we depend on imports for something like a dozen and a half, when I say depend, 100% of yep. our consumption of about a dozen and a half critical minerals come from imports. About yep. another two dozen, more than half come from imports. Mm. That's what it used to be when these first critical mineral import dependencies were explored, the right. number that we were dependent on totally were it's a handful, just a few. Uh, so that's, that's been a continual concern uh, to the Defense Department. But in truth, the quantities required for defense strategic purposes are small enough that you could stockpile them. It's not like stockpiling bananas and they go bad. If you stockpile <laughs> dysprosium or you know, ruthenium or cadmium, it's going right. to be okay uh, a few decades from now if you don't use it. You can resell it. It's right. relatively easy to stockpile, uh, all things equal. It's just it costs money, right? You have, right? you have to buy more than you need, keep them somewhere. But the magnitude of increase in requirements for the green path are what changes the game. You can't stockpile these scales. Give an example of the scales. We've known for a long time that cobalt's important. It's, yep. it's used to make steel harder, right? So it's principal right. purposes in that kind of, it's another, a lot of other purposes. It's also a very reactive chemical, very useful in batteries, in battery chemistry. So it's present in most high performance batteries. Not all, there's a few other tricks, uh, but it's in almost all cell phone batteries and it's in all Teslas right now. Right. So the United States has a million electric cars on the road today, which is a lot more than we've ever had. It's a lot for most people who are not, familiar with the auto sector, that's 0.5% of America's light duty vehicles. So it's not exactly a massive penetration, but that tiny percentage of our vehicles contains more cobalt than a billion cell phones. Did you say so a billion cell phones? Billion, phone? what would it be like Bravo? One billion cell phones worth of cobalt in the 1 million electric vehicles Boy. in America. <laughs> So now what we want to do is have not a million electric vehicles in America, of which, by the way, more than half are in California. California wants them to be all electric. So we're going to increase, assuming only California goes that direction, that quantity of batteries by tenfold. And we want to put batteries on the grid, which requires another order of magnitude increase in battery production and, and mineral consumption. And now we're talking just about Cobalt, cobalt right. is is mined in a lot of places in the world. We have a lot of cobalt in America. We don't do a lot of cobalt mining, 
uh, roughly half the world's cobalt comes from the Congo, uh, okay. where infamously, and we can credit even the Washington Post did a series on this. You know, you can use the magic Google machine to find out that the uh, like the country, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which seems like a bit of an oxymoron in its name, uh, <laughs> use you know they uh, employ children in mines. Yep and in rather harsh conditions, carrying bags of rocks, digging with shovels. So, you know, we know that there's lots of mining practices in the world that would be unacceptable to us, um, morally, legally. We, we also know for a fact that the rate of increase in demand for these minerals of all kinds associated right. with uh, the green path will grow far faster than supply from the United States could be if we were to decide we like mining. Yep. Um, is uh, I, we're talking about cobalt here, but lithium is even worse, isn't it? I mean, well, you, you need a lot more lithium than cobalt because they're lithium batteries. But look, lithium is a, is a different element in where okay. we get it and who has it. Uh, certainly, uh, South American countries, Argentina, Australia is a huge lithium supplier. Uh, the challenge with lithium, of course, is that it's extracted dominantly from these great brine salt flats, where normally you'd find environmentalists unhappy about that because these are fragile, delicate ecosystems. And yeah. the, the quantities of water and the physical, uh, the physical large heavy machinery that's you know, used and moved around to to uh, dig up, transport uh, the lithium is, is kind of epic. I, yeah. I, I happen to think that all these things can be done in an environmentally acceptable way. I mean, I thought, I don't yeah. think the debate is you, you can't get lithium carbonate in an environmentally acceptable way or, or copper or nickel. It's just that many places aren't doing that. And the challenge of doing it is exacerbated by volume. I mean, mm. Another sort of factoid, which is in my paper, you refer to, is that the, never mind the batteries, but the fact that a car is electric instead of internal combustion means there's more wiring in the car. Twice as much copper is in every electric car as in a regular car. Copper mines are, I mean, again, use the magic Google machine under images and look at copper mines. They're enormous. And we're gonna increase the world's consumption of copper going that route. Nickel is the preferred active uh, chemical or mineral to either complement, to minimize cobalt use or replace it. Right. Nickel mines are also epic and huge. And in fact, one of the biggest nickel mines in the world is in Siberia, it's Russian. And this past summer, that nickel mine to very little attention in the world had an oil spill yep. in the Arctic. It was the yep. second largest oil spill in the Arctic in history. The only one that was bigger, slightly bigger, was the Exxon Valdez. Yep. Spilling oil in the Arctic is, you know, no bueno. I mean, come on, it's not good. It's hard to clean up and nobody no, really likes bad. it. But yeah, stuff bears don't like it. No. Yeah, stuff, but stuff happens and it's not, in fact, uh, you know, it's not, not necessarily a knock on, I, I mean, I think the forensics will find out that they uh, did some things that were sort of, looks like they are short shrift on maintenance of the oil tanks. The oil was there to run the heavy machinery that you yeah. need to dig up the ore, <laughs> to move the ore. Yeah. So that gets back to your point of the, of the, the carbon cycle. Right. Uh, the global mining industry uses about as much oil 
as the global aviation industry did before we shut it down in January, this past January. And Man. we don't, you know, I think aviation will come back right. uh, in time, take a few years like it did after 9-11, and then it will double, right, over time. Right. But it probably will take, I don't know, double where it is today. If you look at forecasts, it's sort of 10 or 20 years. If we pursue the green energy path for yeah. ground-based machines, we'll more than double global mining. And global wow. mining will mean oil consumption for mining minerals will grow faster than oil consumption to fly people in airplanes. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, the magnitude of oil being used is exponential. Uh, it's a, it, I mean, oil's not going to go away. I mean, the other, the other point, which is I make in my paper, but it's not an original point. I mean, actually, it should be clear here. None of my points in the sense of the facts are original. I, I use research from the United Nations, from the, uh, uh, from the USGS. I use data that's not original. I'm not making up data. Uh, the originality is in extracting the ways it might be useful to people. But the uh, oil issue, you know, is we have this construct, which, which is the biggest lie. And the lie is not that we won't have more green machines. Of course, we're gonna have more green machines, more windmills, right. more solar arrays, more electric cars, because they're better and cheaper than they used to be. It just, right. they are better and cheaper. So what's, again, there's nothing in dispute. And that's a good thing, in fact, in my view. Uh, but we're not gonna stop using oil either because it's not only can you not increase the use of the green machines fast enough, it's that the utility of the oil-based and gas-based machines is good enough, which is to say cheap enough, the world's not going away from them. The IEA's latest forecast, which I'm sure you saw, came out, I think about two or three weeks ago. Their, their forecast based on the most optimistic path to achieve the so-called Paris goals, right. uh, which no one is adhering to. Let's be clear. There, is, there, is, there are only two countries that have met, met their Paris promises. Gambia and Morocco. Nobody else is meeting the Paris promises. So it's irrelevant. Everybody, everybody has de facto withdrawn from the Paris Accord. Only the United States has officially withdrawn. Everybody else is not doing it. But if they did what they said they would do, which is what IEA calls plans and intentions. I love these words. Right. If you if they yeah. meet their intentions. It's like non-gap on an accountant. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they forecast oil use restores to its peak consumption, looks like in two or three years, right. and then rises slowly, not a lot in their forecast. So there's a, a kind of a plateau to the growth in oil demand, but doesn't decrease for decades. And in that scenario, gas, natural gas use globally goes up 20%. 20% on a global basis is a monster number for gas demand. So, and that's assuming everybody meets their plans and quote intentions in the yes. Paris Accord, which I will repeat, no one is doing. They may be <laughs> mouthing it. They may be proclaiming it. They might pass laws declaring that we're gonna do it. But in fact, it's not happening. Right. China, uh, I think uh, about a month ago, said by 2050, we're going to be carbon neutral. Right. Uh -huh. 
Well, you can, you can make a declaration or anything you, you, you like. Um, you know, governments do this all the time, especially if the declarations are far enough in the future that they don't matter in the timelines of the politicians who've made the declaration. It's, right. You know, a few people make declarations that are honest. Uh, Microsoft did. Their, their um, climate pledge mm-hmm. is actually an honest pledge. And I commend them for making the honest pledge. It's worth reading. If, for those who, who want to subject themselves to reading a, a climate pledge, it, it's an excellent uh, disquisition on the realities of energy at the Microsoft website. You can use, again, okay. the magic Google machine, type in Microsoft carbon pledge. But in that carbon pledge, in two places, first at the first page, and then at the last page, which is like a 20 page, pl- 20 page pledge, we Quick. find the sentence, <laughs> we find the sentence from Microsoft after pledging to be carbon neutral and, you know, et cetera, that the technologies, and I'm quoting, don't exist today to do that. They didn't say the money didn't exist. They didn't say we aren't subsidizing enough windmills and solar power. They said the technologies don't exist, which is you know, what, what I'm essentially saying is the same thing. And it's, it, it's not surprising when you look at the underlying facts, what it takes to come back full circle to where you started, to what it takes to build a wind turbine. In fact, let's talk about not tons of, of steel and concrete. We talk about tons of non-recyclable plastics. I mean, (laughs) most people don't know that that one blade on a big wind turbine weighs 15 tons, one blade, 15 tons Hmm. made out of plastic that isn't recycled, essentially can't be recycled. So a single small wind farm, 100 megawatt wind farm, which is tiny, you know, a single gas fired turbine at 100 megawatts sits in a semi-trailer, essentially. Right. A 100 megawatt wind farm is uh, an array of, let's say, let's assume the big turbines that are the size of the Washington Monument. You gotta have 20 Washington Monument sized machines. The plastic in those blades in that one array is greater than all of the world's recyclable plastic straws combined. So if we're worried about recycling plastics, instead of worrying about plastic straws, maybe. I, I saw a picture uh, just recently of all these blades like an elephant graveyard. Sure. All well, you, they don't decompose. They'll be there past China's carbon neutral. <laughs> they'll, be past the, they'll be there past the second coming. Right, uh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that is crazy. Um, solar panels, as we talk about wind, you've got to create heat. You've got to create all those things, Mark. And as you sit back and take a look, that's using just as many, much precious minerals. You got to heat that. That's not, I mean, there's not any difference between solar and wind in that, is there? Well, so, so there is a difference in this sense. Um, first, there's no difference. The, the, the no difference part is all green machines that are called renewable have to be built, built from minerals and the right. machines themselves are not renewable and they wear out. So the right. lifespan of these machines is typically 20 years compared to conventional energy machines which typically last 30 to 50 years, depending on the machine. So there's, there are differences like that. The difference between wind and solar is that the solar arrays involve more 
a larger quantity of minerals, materials that have to be mined and processed per unit of energy produced. So it actually takes you up another notch in total materials extraction. And the materials are similar. You need uh, the biggest quantity of materials, of course, is in things like concrete to make the pads and steel and copper and uh, you know aluminum. But right. also you need minerals. You need, if it's CAD tel cells, cadmium telluride, you need cadmium and tellurium. Uh, you need indium for the, uh, you know, the junctions, selenium often. So you have a set of minerals. And the interesting thing that most people are not aware of, but again, to credit them, the United Nations Environmental Program and uh, a variety of the uh, European Union uh, environmental organizations are quite honest about pointing out that never mind the solar cells themselves, the solar panels, the kind of glass you put above the cells to protect the cells Right. are made with infused with metals to so the glass will have the properties you need of transparency and strength right. and durability that makes them as a waste technically hazardous waste to dispose of so they yeah. can't be easily disposed of ground up and just buried they and when you have hazardous waste it doesn't mean you can't handle it, it doesn't mean you can't dispose of it as it just means it costs a lot more to deal with it at end of life. Right now, no one's planning on dealing with any end of life uh, issues with uh, with the solar and, uh, and wind I, arrays. I just, Mark, I just talked to a company uh, last week about doing another interview with them and they are a solar panel recycling firm and they can't make money. They're having to well, go through sure. They're issuing credits to folks. Sure like Tesla did to yeah. all these companies they are saying we're carbon neutral, so. Sure. Well, the way they'll make money is that governments will pass laws and require yeah. uh, the installers to collect money from consumers for what's called a decommissioning fund, which is how nuclear power plants are operated right. and built. So the, the solution will be to raise the cost of the machines at consumer expense uh, and mandate that, which is essentially how, how we're doing it now. We, have, we don't have a free market in wind and solar. We have a mandated market. Now you, you can be of the opinion that we should have one, but we should be honest about the fact that it's a mandated market. Uh, it is, and, and Warren Buffett once said, uh, the only reason to invest in, uh, I believe either wind or solar or both, he said was because of tax uh, well, they're good. They're, they're, well, they have tax deductions. They have another feature. The product they produce, the market's required to buy. It's a particularly okay. nice thing if you're if you're in the if you're in business, in the oil and gas business, the market's not required to buy your product. And not only that, the market can pay whatever the market decides for your product. In right. wind and solar, the market's not only required to buy it. They're told what they have to pay for it, and right. it's typically take or pay. So if the market doesn't take it, you get paid anyway. <laughs> it's a good deal. What I mean, your, if you're on the receiving end of that. Uh, yeah, if you if you are. Um, what are your thoughts? Because I'm also hearing that even though you, you like you said, uh, some of the wind farm or the solar panels have a life expectancy of 20 years. I'm hearing that they have a in, that there's now problems with even that 20 year that it's shortening down into less than that. And that would almost even exacerbate everything that we've talked about instead of a 20 year lifespan you're seeing these wind farms coming apart in 10 7 right I mean, is that what you're hearing as well 
Well, sure. Uh, I think first we 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 know that the earlier machines are wearing out faster than they, ex than they expected. Right. We have a lot of data on this now because Britain started building a lot of these machines before at scale before other countries did. So they're seeing exactly the um, effect that you point out that, but more, maybe more important is that uh, the machines operating efficiency and reliability are both declining faster than expected. So setting aside lifetime, the kilowatt hours per machine per hour of operation is declining faster than projected. They're wearing out essentially faster than expected. Wow. It, it, not in terms of how long they last, that's one issue, but how, how well they work while they're operating. But let's be clear, I, I think those are, those are the kind of engineering problems that engineers are good at solving. They'll, they will right. solve those problems. I, I have, I think they're, they're fair criticisms that if, if people were being honest, they'd be honest about what our experience has been so far, right. not so good often, but th that's not a reason not to build the wind turbines. The reason not to build them is, is I don't want them being built with mandates and subsidies. If, right. if uh, we should expect engineers and they already are, are making them longer lived, more reliable, uh, more efficient. All these things are what engineers do. And, uh, and we should expect that trend to continue. And we should expect it to continue for, for some time. I mean, it's not gonna end overnight and, and any more than any other machine. The Caterpillar diesels, by that I mean, you know, the uh, electric generating diesel engines. Uh, this is a very old technology, uh, dates back over a century when Rudolf Diesel came up with the idea. and mm -hmm. The size, the physical size of a diesel now, the pallet it sits on, like a one megawatt or five megawatt diesel, is half shrunken in size. But who, I mean, who would have thought that? And their if their efficiency far higher, reliability far higher. We'll, we'll, the difference between a diesel, by the way, though, and a wind turbine, is while we can make the reliability of the wind turbine higher, right? We can't scale them smaller. They're going to get bigger. We've made diesel engines smaller and smaller for the same horsepower because we, we have, we're a long way from the thermodynamic limits of those machines, even now. Right. Uh, thermodynamic limits are sort of in the 85% range, physics limits. And they're now, op they used to operate at 30% efficiency. They're now all the way up to 60% efficiencies, 55. Okay. Wind turbines don't have that kind of headroom. If you want more power out of a wind turbine, you're going to make it bigger, but bigger, I mean, bigger than Washington Monuments, because the energetic efficiency of how much energy you can take out of the wind, convert it to power, is dictated by, you can't have more energy come out of the wind than is in the wind. You can't right. take all the energy out of the wind because then there's no wind. Right. So it's called the Betts limit. The Betts limit's about 60%, pretty high. Today's turbines are already pushing north of 40%. So they got a little ways to go. We could make them better, but you know it, they're not going to get ten times better, which is the kind of silly babbling you hear from people talking about exponential gains in energy tech. There are no exponential gains in energy tech. It's not a computer. They don't scale that way. Yeah, Moore's law years and years ago said the uh, number of transistors would double. Uh, you know, in the processors every mm -hmm. few years. Uh, this is not the same way. Um, well, it's not the same way, not because the engineers are stupid, but because oh, the physics yeah. information, as you know, are different to the physics of energy. Energy scales up, information scales down. And, but the, the category error, because we call this clean tech, is seductive. 
we have lots of forecasters, lots of pundits mm -hmm. talking about these exponential change and say, look at what happened to computers. The same is going to happen in, in solar tech because it's, after all, using silicon, just like, just like microprocessors. This is, this is a, a, an embarrassing uh, category error of a fundamental level which makes the word ignorance in its semantic sense seem like a mild insult. <laughs> now, Mark, um, answer me this. Through all of this going through this, I know we've got a hard stop here in a few minutes, and everybody that says they're going to natural gas mm -hmm. says we're going clean. I mean, the, the people like the uh, cruise ships, the carnival ships that just put in their own floating LNG port, they said, we're going green, but yeah. we're using natural gas. Or the folks that are saying, we're using blue hydrogen, but you get that from natural gas. Or uh, how do you respond to those kind of questions and say, we're green, but we're using natural gas? Well, I mean, it's first of all, I have some sympathy for the so sympathy for the gas industry willing to embrace the green label or the ESG label. I mean, anybody wants to embrace an ESG label these days, given the direction of ESG funds. So I, I, I get it. The, the, the essence of the problem is you're obviously know and hinting at is that we, we don't, we have uh, no definition of what green means. Uh, and we have, we have uh, worse than no definition of what ESG really means. It means whatever people want to say it means. The only definition that is sort of in circulation of what the climate apocalyptics mean by green or ESG is not entailing any emissions of carbon dioxide. And of right. course, there's nothing, including solar panels, wind turbines, or batteries, that doesn't somewhere in its fuel cycle entail carbon dioxide and hydrocarbons. And so they have dreams of a zero carbon dioxide, zero hydrocarbon energy cycle. It could be imagined someday. And look, let's be clear on, on, on the, so the underlying engineering. You, you, one could imagine such a thing. You, right. you could construct such a scenario. It's not, it's not actually impossible. It's just astoundingly inefficient and profoundly expensive. But you could electrolyze water instead of getting the hydrogen from methane because CH4 is you know, tautologically, carbon and hydrogen. You strip the carbon out, uh, you've got hydrogen, but that leaves, means you have to use a, uh, you've got carbon to just deal with. So why not just electrolyze water? Well, well we've been electrolyzing water for a long time. Uh, right. Why not do that with, I don't know, uh, solar arrays, you could. And why not make the solar arrays from minerals that are mined with I don't know, picks and shovels and people that fewer carbon, there's some carbon dioxide emissions from that, but. Or, or with hydrogen powered trucks using fuel cells where there's a closed loop and the hydrogen comes from, I mean, you can, you can construct these scenarios and people have, they're, they're silly scenarios because they all move society in the opposite direction of what humanity sought for thousands of years, which is to reduce the cost of energy, reduce the footprint of the infrastructure associated with supplying food and fuel to society, increase the inherent efficiency of these systems and, in, and decrease their land costs, increase yep. their land efficiency, if you like. So that path is orthogonal, what's well, worse than that. It's the opposite direction of all, what humanity has sought, which is 
we would prefer to have no land and no humans involved, no labor involved in extracting energy to deliver to society. The fact that we brag about labor in the energy market is, you know, it's important to employ people. Let's just be clear. But yeah. the direction society has been going and wants to go are, is less labor per unit of energy. We want right. the labor to go elsewhere into education and entertainment and, you know, restaurants. I mean, things that we're not allowed to do anymore, I guess. But we're all coped up, aren't we? Or cooped <laughs> up. <laughs> Cope. Well, some people are coped up. But <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and that brings us back to, to governance in all the money around the world is being tied to COVID relief. Yeah. It seems like, you know, if you don't have capital, you don't, uh, it's being tied to solar, it's green. And that's why that, uh, that little scenario with uh, natural gas is fitting in there. They're calling it green. So they get this funding. Yeah. Yeah. You have any brilliant ideas on governance on how we? Can... <laughs> <laughs> well, since we're talking on election day, I guess the advice was go, whatever go your vote. proclivities are, go vote, right? But uh, <laughs> look, uh, go governments have the uh, not only the capacity, but if they're if we're in a free in a free uh, free market environment, by that I mean a democratic environment, rather, uh, governments have the uh, right and uh, you know, often exercise that right. To do things that are silly, uh, <laughs> we, we just we always have, we always will. And one of the silly things I think is subsidizing uh, energy sources that are antithetical to progress, which is lower costs and less land use, less material use. I think that's silly. We also know that in free markets, over time, reality wins. Right. If the reality is the if it is the case that a uh, society powered mainly by wind, solar, and batteries is cheaper and better, right. that's what will happen. Mm -hmm. I think the science shows that that's not the case, which means the experiment will end, but it won't end painlessly and it <laughs> won't end quickly because you know we have the right to make mistakes. Well, I think we're making a mistake. I would rather have the right to make a mistake than to have experts, whoever they are, right. uh, dictate, which is why I don't like mandates for wind and solar. I, I don't, uh, it's hard to object if uh, a, you know, a state like California says they wanna go that route and provide incentives, governments provide incentives things all the time. Yep. It's really different than a mandate. When you say you can't, you must drive an electric car, you can't drive an internal combustion engine, or you say, the market must install wind turbines and, and solar arrays. Well, then these costs of that are sort of invisible, right? They'll show up later, but they're invisible. If I instead say, I'm gonna write you a check, I'm gonna take taxpayers' money and give you this money, like, like the car subsidy, you know, you get paid from the federal government $7,000 to buy an EV. If you're in California, I think it's closer to 10 state subsidies. So then at least that's honest. We're telling people we're, we're handing you a check from, from somebody else. So let's just be honest about the subsidies instead yeah. of doing the mandates. That's the most toxic thing. If I, It's a long and elliptical way to answer your question. My recommendation is we should fight mandates. We should make the subsidies clear and transparent and have a debate about the subsidies, how long they last, what they really cost and who's paying for them.
You know, Mark, that is probably one of the best way I've heard that explained in a long time. You boiled it down very simply and I liked it. I mean, that was, it's about the mandate, stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I'm sorry. I, I thought that was very well said. And by the way, I hope you've already voted because the polls were closing. <laughs> I have, I have. <laughs> voted as I, as I say, as often as I possibly can. In this case was once, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to be voting six or seven times. I'm voting thank you <laughs> I, I i don't know what uh you know what, depending on the state you live in we all know in some cases in the counties you live in your vote doesn't feel like it counts but i'm as a uh, as an immigrant to this great country uh, as a former and current canadian and american citizen that has a right to vote here i don't have a right to vote in canada uh i i, I mean i'm delighted to see the record turnout that so far uh, yeah. this is this is a good thing if if the one thing we get out of this election uh, is uh, a restoration of people's uh, enthusiasm, even if it's an anger, whichever side they're on, to vote. This is good, but this will come back to, I hope we will end up having debate, whatever the election ends up being like, the debates we'll have about energy are very much like the debates we're gonna have about a lot of issues where we need to be honest about what we're spending money on, because everything costs money. And if, you, if you're saying that I wanna spend money for a future good, or to avoid a future bad, the climate debate's about a, a future bad. Right. Be honest about how much you're spending today to avoid a future bad 50 or 100 years from now, which is yeah. why, the, why the climate debate has shifted into, you know, weather events today are caused by climate change. That's why that debate has shifted. That's right. where the science is really, really uh, clear. And despite all the uh, way the media writes it, these are, these are really silly uh, arguments serious climate scientists know that we're talking about issues that are into the future. But even then, even if you buy that, okay, you're allowed to have that opinion. Be honest about the money, be honest about what you're building and where we're getting it from. Let's say be honest about taking cobalt from Congo. And if you really want to go that route, proposal I made at the end of my paper, as you know, was if we're going to if we're going to subsidize stuff that's yep. green for every dollar of subsidy, my proposal is we, Congress require we mine an extra pound of critical minerals in America for every dollar of subsidy or some, some formula like that. Let's yep. be honest about what this entails. But let's keep it out of the politicians' pockets. <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, lots of ruck. Um, but uh, again, thank you for your time, Mark. I really appreciated your conversation and enjoy your LinkedIn and uh, all of your other books. Uh, we will have all your books and everything in the show notes today and uh, would love to visit with you again in the future sometime. So thank great, you. Great, great, great to be on. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for the time and the uh, platform to rant about reality. <laughs> uh, you were a fun ranter, by the way. Thank you. As always, high level stuff um, there from Mark. We really appreciate it. And you can, you're more than welcome to come and rant about reality whenever you want. For any of our other Energy 360 podcasts, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, um, or the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com. For the oil and gas 360 team, we'll see you next time.